Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, Lord, that really no matter where we study today, um, it's, it's truth. We know we're in the right place no matter what place it is because it is holy and it is true and it is inerrant. And so, Lord, I pray for our time today that it would be a time of clarity, a time of understanding, a time of simply learning. But yet, Lord, as we get closer to the end, Lord, I pray that it would be uh, a time that challenges each and every one of us. Lord, I know uh, sometimes we, uh, we like to think of, oh, gee, I wish my friend was here to hear this, instead of, did that affect me? Well, I wish my husband and my wife would be listening, instead of thinking of themselves. And so, Lord, help us today to always uh, look to within uh, in our own personal relationship with you. And for that matter, where is it at? Where is it at? We claim one thing, but certainly do we live it. And Lord, I pray for myself as I always do. Uh, Lord, you know that I need wisdom. Uh, you know that uh, as I stand up here, I never want anybody to, uh, to listen to me. I want them to hear you, and I want them to hear you through your word. And so uh, just guide me and direct me, Lord, as I, as I share today, and give us ears to hear. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16, which you can see is a letter that is written to the church in Laodicea. Now here in chapters 2 and 3, letters were written typically to what we call the seven churches of Asia Minor. Okay, Today that would be modern day Turkey. And these were seven literal, physical first century churches where you can see if you just sit down and read these letters they're really not too different than the church today as a matter of fact this is why many scholars believe that these seven churches are basically examples of the kinds of churches that have existed throughout history if you go through and look at each one you can kind of see what's been taking place really in the body of christ Okay. Now, if that's true, what that means is that all of these letters can be taken as warnings to every church in every age. Right? We're all one body, whether it started in the first century or the middle of the 10th century or today. It'll still apply to every one of us. Now, each one of these letters is written, just so you know, with really the same approach. Okay? Because I know not too long ago, I looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus. But all of these letters begin with, to the angel of the church of, and of course, it's to that specific church. He then shares in each letter who these words are from. So yes, even though they are certainly written by the Apostle John, who is really doing the talking, right? Just you can look at a couple examples. You can pick any church if you want. Uh, the church at Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burning bronze. And you can keep going, all, all of these letters are the same. But what Jesus was doing here was just using all of the descriptive words that you can actually find about him in chapter 1. Thirdly, 
we see in these letters what is known about each individual church. Same, same thing. He says, like starting in verse 9 in chapter 2, talking to the church at Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Uh, the church at Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Well, that's kind of tough, isn't it? Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service, your perseverance. You see what I'm saying? So in each and every letter, he says, I know what's going on. I know where you've been. I know what you're standing for. Okay? And in following this, he always gives the condition of the church. And after that, there is typically, or if not always, a correction for that church. It could be, uh, be faithful. It might be to repent. Hold on to my word. Something that is challenging this specific church. And then following that, we typically have an exhortation, something to the effect of he who has an ear, let him hear. And he goes on to explain. And then lastly, each letter contains a promise of rewards. And this is typically in the words of to he who overcomes and then he shares something different to every single church. Now, even though each letter contains uh, what I just described, there are a couple minor exceptions. One of them is our text this morning. All of the churches here in chapters 2 and 3 received a commendation for something. Okay, There are things like Christ said, you remained true to my name. You have persevered and, and you have endured hardship for my name. For some, he speaks of their faith. He speaks of their love, their, their service, their patience, and so forth. But when it came to the church of Laodicea, Christ himself could not muster up any words of encouragement. To me, that, that says something. That says a lot. To me, that says there is something awfully wrong with this church. I mean, even in the church of Ephesus, which I mentioned that I, uh, I spoke of a few weeks back, even though they had forsaken their first love, which is Christ himself, he still praised them. He still praised them for their hard work and their perseverance and how they endured hardships, see? But nothing for Laodicea. Absolutely nothing. This morning, I want to take some time to see what the problem was in this church, a problem that was so bad that any praise that might have been deserved for this church was actually withheld because of sin. Now, even though this morning, this, this, the, the whole section here is verses or are verses 14 through 22, for the sake of time, because you know how long I would take to go through verses 14 through 22, uh, I'm just going to look at verses 14 through 16. And so if you're there, read with me those verses. He says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Draw back, if you would, to the beginning there in verse 14. 
he begins here, he begins this letter like all the other letters, and that is, he says, it is written to the angel of the church at Laodicea. Now, if you have been here previously to any of the sermons that I have done on these seven churches, it won't be anything different here, and, and that is to say that the English word, therefore angel, it comes from the Greek, which simply means a messenger, okay? It just means a messenger. Now, throughout Scripture, and Dave kind of mentioned it just briefly this morning, but throughout Scripture, this word is used to mean really one of two things. It's, mean, it's meant to use either heavenly angels, okay, or earthly or human messengers, okay? And as always, the context will determine which one and that it is, okay? The problem we have today is that most people um, get this picture in their head of when they see the word angel. Geez, go to a, not that you would need to do this, go to a Catholic bookstore, and it's just littered with things like this. It's littered with, with idols half the time, but it's littered with what they picture the, uh, of what an angel is. And, 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 you know, everybody has that picture. It could be from a movie. It could be from a cartoon. It could be from a trinket. It's, it's, you know, part man, translucent, white, whatever. It could be from Scripture, obviously, of, of what you believe that this angel is. Now, there are some, uh, as far as our text is concerned this morning, who believe that the angel that is spoken of in these seven churches uh, were their guardian angel, okay? And basically, they use Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, which says, are not all ministering spirits, I'm sorry, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, in that context, speaking of heavenly angels, the implied answer is yes, absolutely, okay? But here in our text this morning, and this is what I want us all to understand, due to the fact that all of these letters were written to, as I said earlier, a literal, physical, first century church, just like you and me sitting here today, I believe the word angel or messenger is talking about a real person, a, quote, messenger, probably the pastor, probably the overseer, whatever title they carried at that point, but whoever it was who was in charge of or who taught that church. There's really no reason to go beyond that. This is a real church with real people, okay? Don't, don't catch yourself going, wow, man, there's a letter written to an angel, okay? We get our minds off in weird things that way. Now, from here, as I stated earlier, Jesus, speaking about himself, he references whose words these really are. Okay, some of you who have a red letter edition Bible, that's kind of an, it's kind of an easy one for you, right? So who is it that is actually making these comments to the church? Well, here in verse 14, he says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, out of these letters, these seven letters, two of them, Philadelphia and Laodicea, do not use the exact words that are mentioned in chapter 1, as the others do. Instead, you'll notice that Jesus describes himself here with three titles. Okay? It's as if he's saying, this is how you can look at me. This is who I am. And I think this is important, folks, because he's the one who, if you will, is writing the letter. 
okay? The first title that he gives himself is the Amen. Anybody happen to notice that was in that final song we sang? Maybe one person, anybody? No? One. Thank you, Candy. We appreciate your honesty. It was actually in that last, that last song. But he calls himself the Amen. Now, the basic meaning of Amen is so be it. Or let it be so. Or may it be fulfilled. Obviously, we know this word because we, for lack of better terms, we tag it on to the end of our prayers. We pray things in and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, And then we say, let it be so. Right? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, let this be fulfilled. That's what the word amen means. Now, what some of you might not know is this was actually a custom that was actually passed on to the church from the Jewish synagogues in the early first century. When someone would read the scriptures in the synagogues, when someone would expound on them, he would then offer up a prayer to God and the others, if you will, the congregation would say, amen. It was basically stating that that statement, uh, we believe or we're making that statement our own. Whatever it is that man prayed, we're making it our own. So they're saying, let it be so. May that be fulfilled. This was the response of the worshipers. Okay? Now, we sometimes see that in different churches today. When somebody ever does, and I'm sure we've all seen it before, when a pastor is speaking, somebody might like a specific statement, and they may say, amen. And that is literally what that means. That means, I agree with you, so be it. Absolutely. That's what it means. And that's really how that got started in the early first century. Now, understanding this, knowing what the word amen means, it's still a little tough sometimes to put it together with Christ who says, I am the amen. I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 helps with this, and it says this. Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, Yes, simply meaning they are true, they are trustworthy in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Same principle. It is the affirmation of the truth of that statement. He says the amen is spoken by us. Okay, The amen, God's promises are true. They are through Jesus. They are trustworthy. We see that in that text. Well, taking this word and applying it to himself, what he's probably saying is that in himself, there is certainty. Within Christ, there is certainty. In him, the fulfillment of his promises. You might say there is affirmation, right? Maybe the word trustworthiness is an appropriate word as well. So when Christ speaks, when he makes a declaration, he's saying, it is the final word. It is so. You and I can count it as truth. And by the way, in case you didn't know, the very same word in the Hebrew, meaning the very same thing, is amen. It goes in both languages. The second title used of Christ, which is certainly connected to the first, is he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now, here in Revelation in chapter 1, 
verse 5, he was called the faithful witness. In chapter 3, verse 7, it is he who is holy and true. Later on in chapter 19, verse 11, many of you know this, John says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called, anybody know? Faithful and true. Okay? So it's not just what he does as the amen, the fulfiller of his promises, but also what he says. He is completely trustworthy. The faithful and true witness is to say his testimony is always reliable. It is always accurate, and it absolutely never falls short of the truth. I like how MacArthur puts it. He says, he is living verification and confirmation of the promises of God in everything that he does, and he affirms the truth of God in everything he says. He is absolutely true. Or you can, want, you can just say he is the truth, which, by the way, he has claimed to be. I am the truth, right? Lastly, Christ presents himself as the ruler of God's creation. Now, the word ruler there in the NIV is really not a very good translation. Um, it's better defined as uh, he is the beginning of God's creation. He is the origin. Uh, he is the one who uh, commences. Okay, Any of those translations are very good. Ruler is not very good. Now, because the English translation here is somewhat ambiguous, uh, if you know anything about the cults, they love to jump on things like this because they love to say that, that Jesus was God's first creation. Okay? They believe that Jesus was the beginning of God's creation, and which is total nonsense, but that being said, it's very typical for the cults, people, uh, more so people like Muslims, people like uh, Mormons, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they, they deny, they take away the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So basically, any chance they think they have, if you're involved or you know of things like this, they, they jump on in to deny his deity, saying, no, 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 this, you know, Jesus is great, but he was a created being, okay? Now, the problem is that this states just the opposite. The Greek is very clear. It says he begins the creation of God. Okay? He starts it, in other words. You can say that he is the source. And that's not just my interpretation. The Bible is very clear. I don't have enough time, but I'll give you just three different verses. John 1, verse 3. Speaking of Christ, speaking of him as the word, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I mean, that in itself is pretty darn clear, don't you think? In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, listen, and through whom he made the universe. Did you catch that? 
He also makes that statement very clear in Colossians 1.16. For by him, he's speaking of Christ, by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, whether they are visible or invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Okay? So by calling himself the beginning, Jesus is the uncreated source of creation. Does that make sense? He is the uncreated. It's like in philosophy. Him, like God, is the uncaused cause. So by presenting himself with these three titles and now knowing who it is who actually authored this letter, this church, the church at Laodicea, has no choice but to know that what is being said is absolutely true. There is no argument. Okay? It is accurate. It's coming straight from the mouth of their creator. That is, by way, the good news. They don't have to question what he says. That is also the bad news because there was nothing good to say. You see, this is typically where these letters, you will find a commendation. All these letters, this is typically where you'll find a commendation, a word of praise to the church that they've done something well. Christ just, or God or Christ doesn't want to just come in and blast them all for sin. I mean, we would deserve the same thing, Right? But he tells them what they've done good first. So, for example, the church in Thyatira, Jesus says, look at I know your deeds. I know your love and I know your faith. I know your service and your perseverance that you are, are, are doing more now than you've ever done before. Of course, following that is a but, right? The church in Philadelphia, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Church of Pergamum, you remain true to my name. And if you remember, as I spoke of Ephesus a while back, he says to Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. He says all those things, and those are all good things. Those are all a pat on the back, if you will. But he says all of those things right before he says, but you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken me. But yet, he gives them the praise that they deserved to that extent, right? Well, how about from our text this morning? The church at Laodicea, you'll notice there in verse, uh, verse 15, what does he say? He says, I know your deeds, and that's it. That's it. I know your deeds. There's nothing good to say. Matter of fact, the implication in itself is somewhat negative. It's, it's as if he's saying, look it, I know what you've been doing. It's like something you heard from your mother when you were young, isn't it? I know what you've been doing. Because moms have eyes behind their heads. We all know that. But that's what he's saying. 
Now keep reading here. Look at verses 15 and 16 once again. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, or therefore, because you are lukewarm, you're not hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Folks, this is not good. I mean, I hope we all understand that. Matter of fact, I don't think any letter could get worse than that. A letter written from the very Lord himself. You see, it's, it's, it's one thing to hear from the mouth of Christ. Look at guys, you've done some really good things, but you're struggling in this or you're struggling in that. You have failed here. Okay, It's one thing to hear that. It's another to hear only one thing. You're not hot. You're not cold, and therefore, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, what Jesus is doing here, just so you know, this is very important to understand the text, is he's using a word picture, okay? A word picture that speaks specifically to this church, okay? They, it's in a way that they specifically would understand it. And, of course, it has to do with water, Okay? Now, about six or seven miles north of Laodicea was a town called Hierapolis. Okay? Hierapolis was very well known because of one thing, and that was its hot springs. Hierapolis had hot springs. Okay? And as you can imagine, this was a very popular place amongst the people because as we know today, for those of you who may have ever had a hot tub or something, it's very therapeutic. It's very relaxing. Okay? Anybody and everybody from the surrounding areas knew about these hot springs. They were great. They were very popular. Anybody ever been to one of those before? Don and myself have. It's pretty nice when you can just, it's, it's just all natural. It really is. It's, it's, it's very nice. So here you have these hot springs. Because uh, remember, they didn't have hot tubs like we do, right? It was very nice for them. Now, secondly, in Colossae, which was about 10 miles southeast from Laodicea, was a cold stream. Now, picture, folks, this is in Turkey. Turkey isn't known for its great, nice, cool culture there, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's out in the middle of the desert out there, okay? But out there, it was a cold stream. This is the same thing. You can only imagine how popular that stream was. And from what I have read, that stream was always running and it was always cold, okay? Always cold, always running. You didn't have to tell anyone here, that's really refreshing. I don't care who you are, I don't care where you live, if you've ever drank out of a stream. I remember when I was a kid, we climbed this mountain and we were dying of thirst and there was a stream and it was really cold and we drank out of it and it was like, whew, that was great. We all understand that, Right? Keep in mind, folks, these people didn't have modern conveniences like we have. We just walk into our refrigerator and open the, open the door. We, we get some ice out of the freezer. We go down to the convenience store on the corner. Well, they don't have any of that kind of stuff. So to find a cold stream, boy, that was, that was awesome. And therefore, it's very well known. Everybody would want to go around that. So in and around the area of Laodicea, what was considered local to this specific church, this is why context always matters, right? It's what is, is local to this church. We see two things that were great assets 
okay? One was hot and the other was cold. Both were good. Both were assets, okay? Sometimes people misinterpret those things. Hot and cold, in this context, both were great assets, okay? Now, that makes sense here in our text because Jesus thought they were beneficial, right? What does he say? He says, I wish you were either or. I wish you were cold or I wish you were hot. I wish you were one or the other, right? As you can see, he's just using this as an illustration, okay? I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. Cold water is refreshing. Hot water is useful for uh, medicinal purposes. It's therapeutic. Yet lukewarm water is neither. It's neither. One historian says the water supply of Laodicea was derived from an artificial pipeline bringing water which was literally lukewarm and so impure as to have an emetic effect, meaning it makes you vomit. So using what was local to these people, the people at the church of Laodicea, that they would understand. There was no question that they specifically would understand that. He says either one of these would be great, cold or hot, because he's using that illustration. But the problem was, spiritually speaking, and of course, as you know, this is what Jesus is getting at. Spiritually speaking, he says they were neither. They were neither. They weren't hot or cold, which both were beneficial. Instead of being hot or cold, Jesus says, you are that foul-tasting, impure, make-you-want-to-barf, lukewarm water. Folks, I don't think he can get any clearer than that. This church, these people, were pictured as utterly abhorrent to Christ because they were lukewarm He personally said, I am about to spit, or some may say spew you, out of my mouth, which is the concept of drinking that gross water that they had. You would go like this and go, you know, like you'd see people do that. That's what he's talking about. But he's talking about their spiritual lives. See, some churches made the Lord weep. Other churches made him angry. This church made him sick. And you want to know why? Because, folks, Jesus is looking for people who are sold out. Jesus is looking for people who are zealous, who are passionate about the things of God, and they live it out. They love Him, they love His church, they love His Word, right? Many of you might know Luke 9, 23. I put Dave on the spot, but I won't do that to you, Dave. It's on your license plate. If any man desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Right? Notice in that verse, it doesn't say until you reach a certain age. I want you to deny yourself and follow me until you're in your mid-40s. He doesn't say until you reach this maturity level. He doesn't give any stopping point. Do Do you stop following Christ? The problem is, with some people, the answer is, well, kinda. 
There's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, where it says it's okay to put our Christian life in neutral and just cruise over the finish line. You won't see that in anywhere, in any place in Scripture, at any time. The problem is, how many Christians do that? On a scale of, of 1 to 10, how many Christians maybe will reach level 5 and they're content with that? Right? They feel their spiritual life, and usually when you ask people where they're at spiritually on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, they're usually off. Trust me, I've done this before. They're off. Oh, I'm a 7. Oh, you're not even near a 7. But if they reach a five, they seem to be content with that. They're satisfied with being godly enough. It's enough. If this is you, let me welcome you to the membership of the Laodicean church. Because you are the description of the lukewarm church. John Stott once wrote, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this, he says. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. Folks, that simply means, have you found yourself complacent? Have you found yourself self-satisfied? You're uninterested in maturity or continuing this maturing process. The Bible calls it sanctification. You kind of are not concerned with discipleship. You have no concern of a, a continually changing life. How many lives in the church today, whether it be this church or, or the church out there, but I'm talking to this church, how many, how many lives can be described by those two words, cruise control? It's something we all have to think about. The conversation I had the other day was somebody, which I appreciated the phone call, it took a lot to call me, but they were reading something and they said, you know, this, this says something about a walk with Christ and yet that's, that's not me. I'm okay with A, B, and C, and D, and E, and all of a sudden I reach a point where I'm going, I, I don't see myself there. And so that says a lot that you actually called to talk about it. It does. And how many people have, have really done the same thing? They've reached a point in their life or they've reached an age in their life. We use excuses like, well, you know, I've been in the church since I was a little kid. I mean, my response to that is, so? I think God's response is, so what? Have you arrived? Great, then you're still on the train. Put it in drive and keep going. But we use a lot of excuses in our lives. I was brought up in a great, great Christian family. Wow, well, you were truly blessed. But how many in the church are done? They've reached their maturity level, and they really have no interest to go any further. That's my challenge for us today, because that was the thought that came from that phone call. 
And it's really a, something that it's not a one-person issue. It's an everybody issue. We feel well, that's it. We're done. I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. I'm not a heathen. I'm not like those people out there. You know, people look at me as a very respectable person, and we call it a day. We're on cruise control. Think about this for a minute, because as you know, we're going to talk about it just for a couple minutes when I'm done praying. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can use this church as an example. It's not a great example, but Lord, it's a reminder to all of us. Lord, you're willing to look at this church and not give them any praise whatsoever. Many churches you did. I certainly hope that you will give this church some praise. But yet, Lord, I know that for every one of us in this room, I know that all of us have fallen short to some degree or another. I know, Lord, that for those of us who teach on a consistent basis, we are blessed because we're forced to study. We're forced, not in a bad way, but to get into your word. But, Lord, for others, it's a a battle. They seem to be content. They seem to be just fine with where they're at. I don't need to mature any longer. They can say otherwise, but their lives tell another story. God, I pray for each individual here today that this, this letter that you have written all those years ago would have an effect on them today. Lord, that we would understand we haven't arrived. I don't care how long people have been, quote, in the church. We will never arrive spiritually, therefore we continue to be sanctified. We desire to mature. I pray that is the heart of each and every person in this room. And if it wasn't, may it be now as we start today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.